I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities and, we hope, gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound Archive writing edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Maria Damon, poet, critic, teacher, text, textile artist. I like that text, textile slash artist <laughs> whose books include Pleasure Text Possession and Literature Nation and Writing Social Science and Ethnicity in Gertrude Stein and Post Literary America from Bagel Shop jazz to micro poetries and the dark end of the street and whose many chapters and articles include important work on Jack Spicer, Bob Kaufman, Adina Karasik, who by the way I'll mention is here in the room, Ann Waldman, uh, who's not in the room but uh, about whom Maria writes, Allen Ginsberg, Beat Culture, Micropoetics, Digital Poetry, Ethnography and Loneliness, The New Yorkans, Visual Text and more. And by Jake Marmer, educator. Woo-hoo. Educator, critic, performer of jazz, klez, poetic improvisation, and that was improvised, whose first record was Hermeneutic Stomp, which brought together diverse poetic traditions, jazz, klezmer, avant-gardism, and ancient forms of improvisation, whose jazz Talmud, published by Sheep Meadow Press in 2012, gives readers an experience of mystic pleasures, I would add, who comes to us all the way from Palo Alto, California, where he teaches great weird stuff to his students at Kahila Jewish High School, who is the co-founder of the Jewish Poetry Retreat at Klez Canada Festival and who is TA in the open online poetry course called ModPo. And by Frank London, the Frank London, I want to add, trumpeter, composer, member of the Klezmatics, the Hasidic New Wave, who's performed with John Zorn, Mel Torme, Jane Sibri, Lamont Young and David Byrne and others, whose own recordings are many and include invocations, cantorial music, and whose projects are also many and include, to take just one example, music for the Czech American Marionette Theater's Golem, who composed the music for John Sayles, the brother from another planet, great music, Frank, and who has taught Jewish music in Canada, Crimea, and the Catskills, the three C's of cool music world stuff and who is currently working on a production of Shakespeare. And what is it? A Merchant of Venice. Karen Coonrod's Merchant of Venice. Oh, my God. With five actors of different ages, genders, ethnicities, all playing Shylock. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. And where are we going to find that when it first starts to... At next week at Peak Performances at Montclair State University in... New Jersey. So let the record show that by the time this poem talk airs, it will be, I hope, not too late, but it'll be far distant from that opening. But it sounds like a great project. Frank, thank you so much for coming down from New York and today, not just doing poem talk, but performing this earlier this afternoon. Thank you so much. It's a huge pleasure. Jake. Hey. It's great to see you. And you, Ben. So glad that you came all this way. And Maria. Hi. Thank you. Hi, Al. We have had some great poem talks together. What's your Always favorite? Always so much fun. It, it's hard to pick one, but because That they're... one we did in New York was so good. Oh, that one. That was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. And... Well, well played. No, no, because I got to talk about something I teach but never have written about. Yeah. So it was like a, a yeah. way to, ha- you know, get those really ideas good. out there. We've done a bunch, and, and, and this one and more in the future. And Adina, thank you for hanging out with us. Well, we're here today to talk about Jerome Rothenberg's Poland 1931, specifically the section of that 1974 book titled Galician Nights or A Novel in Progress. And even more specifically, a 2002 performance of that piece with Rothenberg chanting the text and backed by the klezmatics, the aforementioned klezmatics. The six minute and 26 second recording can be found at Rothenberg's extensive pen sound page. In this recording, we hear sections two, three, and four of the poem, Galician Nights. And the text of Galician Nights can be found in the original New Directions edition of Poland 1931, a paperback pretty widely available as a used book. 
in Rothenberg's new selected poems, 1970 and 1985, and also in Triptych, more recently, of 2007. So here now are Jerome Rothenberg and the Klezmatics performing from Poland, 
And there is here also a wonderful Jewish community. The center of the life of the community is its remarkable synagogue, which is reputed to be very ancient. The community itself is said also to be very ancient and to go perhaps back to the lost tribe of Asher, one of the famous ten lost tribes of Israel. Isaiah the prophet speaks of Jews who had settled in the land of the Sini, but be that as it may, it is certain that from the 7th century on, Persian Jews were coming into China by way of India. There are today 4,000 Jews in China whose appearance is not to be distinguished from that of the Chinese. But don't let that fool you, since they all play mahjong according to the Ashkenazic variation so familiar to us and not the rather simpler native form. There is also in the city a good theater, several western-style beauty parlors, and at least one kosher restaurant managed by a family of Russian exiles. Charity abounds here. The sisterhood flourishes. The study of the law, while not brilliant, is steady, and at least it imposes few new burdens. The climate is ideal. In addition, a wonderful man resides here, whom you would love to meet. When I cannot divulge his name, I am at liberty to inform you that his initials are LL. A trip to this corner of the diaspora will truly change your life. It has been a total, total pleasure watching your faces as we listen to this together. Jake, what do you hear? Just first impression, what do you hear when you hear this recording? Oh, Jerry is ecstatic. I mean, he's loving the music. He's having so much fun, and clearly the musicians are having a ball to responding, like the violin, especially towards the end, doing like these weird um, responses. But also, even in the middle of the groove, lots of uh, lots of immediate responses. You're appropriately looking at Frank. We'll turn to Frank in a second <laughs> to speak from the point of view of the musicians backing Jerry here. But Maria, just start us off general impression what did you hear what did it sound like you've heard Rothenberg perform many times I'm sure I have uh well not a lot but certainly several times here his voice is pitched a lot higher Mm -hmm. um he is uh he's more animated well he's always animated but here there's a difference to his animation and this is also the first time I've heard him perform with music and uh Uh, What I hear is, first of all, a little bit of competition with the volume of the music, and somehow that seems to me to be appropriate to the subject matter because (laughs) there seems to be some kind of gender tension going on here, Um, some kind of attempted display of masculinity and then the (laughs) beheading or castration thereof. and there's thematically a kind of seediness, which I love, and that makes me also very uncomfortable. Frank, implicit in Jake's remark was that there was a certain responsiveness between Jerry and the musicians, that they were responding to each other. What do you remember of this occasion, if anything? I'm going to say that what I remember of it most goes exactly, I I'd written down the word ecstasy as we were listening. I remember that he came in, and, and you, what Maria said about him pitching his voice high, the timbre, in order to, to read a certain way. I guess we do have to talk about sure, Hasidus. Of I, I, yeah. you know, be, especially yeah. because it comes from Galicia. Right. So we're really in the place. And at the cornerstone of Hasidic philosophy is that God wants us to experience joy. And it's interesting, or maybe just natural, that Hasidic philosophy born 250 years ago by the Baal Shem Tov came at one of the darkest times in Jewish history. This is, and, and he wants us to be happy through singing, through dancing, through, through the words. It's, everything's about joy. And, and, and I think we feel that in Jerome's spirit. It's a universal feeling, obviously, but he expresses it in such a Jewish way and in such a particularly Ashkenazic Jewish way that it it fully emphasizes that the same 
ethos of the music that we're playing. And I think that's one of the places where the music and the poetry immediately matched. Yeah. We're in the same time, we're in the same place, and he's reading with this joy. It's in his voice. And you feel it. Of course, I felt that same spirit from Julie Patton's reading today yeah. at, at, yes. at the writer's house. But, yeah. it, but so... And 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 that's what and that allowed us to go to that same place. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so Jake, uh, there's so many things, places we can go from that, and we'll come back again to the klezmatics, this particular performance. But when people have written about the book Poland 1931, this is a reference to Jerry's year of birth, yep. right? To Polish mother and father immigrants. Okay. So uh, more than one critic has referred to Poland 1931, this, this idea of this book, as a kind of messianic ethnography. That's a phrase from Norman Finkelstein. And messianic ethnography, sort of, <laughs> that sort of nice. fits the historical moment that Frank was describing. All right, Jake, either of those things, messianic ethnography or a particular ecstasy in the score? Yeah, well, uh, I can I can start with both. I mean, just building on the thing that Frank was talking about, uh, the uh, the messianic uh, and the, and the joy. Right? There's a group of Hasidim, uh, the Karlin Stolen, who believe that um, in order to be heard in your prayers, you have to shout, and they actually do that in their synagogue. Still, uh, if you go to Bar Park, you hear it, and this is the shouting. Uh, maybe is, is the thing that uh, that is that sounds ecstatic, like the the part. In, in, in part two were reddish eyelids, yellow melancholy eyes. He was her Gentile. She called him little goy. Like the, he says it with such you, glee. You do your, do, do, do little the little goy. Little goy. <laughs> I didn't do it right. <laughs> so there's, there's uh, a kind of um, singing, speechifying that he does here that he doesn't do. Even in the, in the 60s when he was doing the... Technicians of the Sacred and and the, uh, and and chanting with uh, percussion. This somehow is higher, as Maria pointed out. And there are moments where the voice just goes way up into a kind of scratchy place. Maria, uh, thoughts on this uh, ecstasy in the score? Well, you know, I was not the person who really thought of ecstasy when I read this. Um, it seemed to me because I tend to look for conflict. Uh, I guess that's a issue of my <laughs> training as a, you know, in the late, late death of new criticism. Um, but the places that I would identify um, ecstasy are moments of the gold, you know, the not the gold. The gold tooth is that seedy weirdness. But then, you know, he's dreaming of gold utensils, the honey, the honeycomb. Mm -hmm. um uh, thou wearest a rose gown, the use of the uh, King James language, uh, biblical language, which is so rapturous. Um, and uh, so that's where I would identify the ecstasy. Mm -hmm. But it's always also a part and parcel of a kind of, um, I don't know, I would continue to say seediness or even maybe a little cynicism. So Esther K, I mean, so let's maybe get to the thematics a little bit. So we have three parts. In the first, Esther K is, uh, there's a liaison, a continuing liaison uh, with the non-Jewish per person of prominence. And in section three, we have a baby born, presumably of that liaison. Mm -hmm. And section four, which I love and is so strange, it seems to be a letter, I'm going to say from a f woman friend of, of, of Esther's, in China, talking about how there are Jews here in China. Okay. I think it's a man. Uh, well, I, here's my evidence LL for it being Levy, a woman. Something Levy. Yeah. Here's my here's yeah. my evidence for it's a woman. Uh, there's particular reference to the beauty parlors. Uh, there's the sisterhood. I mean, what man in that? Uh, well, he's trying uh, to lure him and the mahjong, the mahjong, which is more of a woman's very sport. Much woman's so I think, I think it's, it's a, a woman. woman friend. And dearest who, Esther K. Yeah, and what I think is that. She's trying to rescue Esther from this um, covert relationship. Yeah, and also she's from, setting her up. I think with a yeah, man she's named trying to set. She's trying to set. It will change your she's life. She's trying to be a matchmaker in order to get her out of yeah. trouble. A being yeah. in Poland in the thirties. Yeah, and B with this covert relationship. Yeah. So Frank, when we get to the third part, part four, 
the band goes into something that's more experimental, sorry for lack of a better term, than there's some, some slow harmonics and the percussion does some odder things, more intermittent. The earlier stuff is more traditional with the clarinet having some fun. First, do you remember if you guys planned this? Um, and why with this prose go into something most musically experimental? Probably an impossible question. No, but... no, not at all. Okay. <laughs> this, okay. this I can do. I, <laughs> I actually, what I can't remember is like where we did this. Yeah. Was or it in Berlin it? or in New York or where, or in California? Yeah. But th those questions about how we chose that, I remember. So in sections two and three, we use two different klezmer rhythms. Yeah. And with melodies. Um, klezmer is generally to oversimplify uh, a song tradition where you have a melody and a beat and chords. And we use more of what we call a chusidal rhythm for section two, a horror or a Jacques rhythm, which is a, a limping three. And then, as you said, in section four, we, we went out of it, out of kind of more in a deconstruction. Yeah. Um, and so, and we, so what, we, what we did choose in advance were these things we said we'll make a transition. We didn't define what that would be. And the idea of when is the voice, Jerry reading the poetry, is that the melody? Because sometimes we would continue the song without any of the melody instruments playing it, let him be the melody. And sometimes we would put the melody um, either as a counterpoint to his reading or especially you notice we would do it like he would finish a, a, a phrase and then we would come out with the melody. So, okay, but to get finally to your question, why did we choose on the third part? And you can look at parts two and three. They're written, I don't know how to say one of you can help me, but it looks like poetry. It's lineated. It's lineated, thank it's you. Breaks. And and section four is written as a letter. And, it, you know, it, it it's non-lineated, I suppose you would say, and and it's more narrative. So we thought that um, a, an element of all reading poetry with music is the sense of rhythm of the poet. And we're not talking about someone going, but a sense, I mean, you felt it today uh, in Bob Holman's readings with, with Papa Sousa, um, he, Bob doesn't have Papa's rhythm. He's got his rhythm. And we thought that in section four, by us getting out of rhythm, we would allow Jerome to read it as a letter if he wanted to. Now, why did it go experimental? Because that's kind of who we are and we're more reacting to the story. Yeah, exactly. You know, but that's... I, have a, I have a sort of completely minor league theory as to why this works so well. But I also want to first stipulate or, or just say for the record that the performances of, that, were, that, that happened here at the Kelly Writers House prior to the, our coming into the studio, first um, we had uh, Jake and Frank... Okay, and then we had, uh, I guess, Julie Patton was next. Mm -hmm. uh, With and Paul then, Van Curen. Yep. And then, and then Bob Holman and Papa Sousa. So that's, and we've just, we're sort of ecstatic from that, and that's why we keep re referring to it. Okay, here's my oh, little idea. Can I idea. just put oh, in the please. plug that you can probably see those performances Here on... at Penn Sound. And I'm looking at Zach in the recording booth, and he's saying yes. All right, here's my idea about part four. And I'll just say it and you can react. What I love about part four is it's Jerry, the Jerry I know personally, you know, using it's a it's a dramatic monologue because he's reading somebody else's voice. I think maybe we think it's a woman's voice. It's a friend of Esther trying to get her to go on a kind of blind date in China or something with LL. I love the uh, I cannot divulge his name, but I am liber at liberty to inform you that his initials, you know, it's all this. It's sort of unnecessarily elevated speech, yeah. you know. But anyway, this this the the life in in for the Jews in China circa circa nineteen thirties. Uh, it's a it's a it would be a mystery to the Jews of Eastern Europe, but it shouldn't be. The letter says because because Jews 
from the eastern edges and in near in the Near East, in the seventh century, Persian Jews, you do see where I'm going. Yeah, they wander through India to China. And prior to the Holocaust, which meant a whole new wave, or just prior to the Holocaust and then immediately after, a whole new wave of uh, of Jewish people going to Singapore and some other places nearby and uh, some, of the, some of the seaside uh, cities of China. But prior to that, you have a small community that he says is visually indistinct from the Chinese population, and sh- she does, he says, through the letter. And to me... What a perfect moment for Klezmer to really stake its claim as relating to to Jerry's interests in this book, which is, you know, as far as I understand it, a kind of uh, ethnically integrative globalist uh, looking for the eastern edges of European culture, trying to revive our interest in them and really being interested in uh, in migration. And the, and the music is a perfect example of the klezmatics at their best saying, look, we have this traditional music, but now watch what happens when we really become contemporary musicians. Jake, what do you think of that idea? Uh, Yeah, I like it. I thought you were going to say this is the moment when Klezmer steps back and you're hearing echoes of Klezmer because you're moving out of Eastern Europe. Oh, I like that too. But uh, I think it's a midrashic, uh, if you will, uh, take on the uh, interaction between music and prose. I think technically uh, it, it may have... Um, something to do with, you know, the, the heteroglossia of the, of, of the prose, right? Uh, it, it doesn't have, like like Frank is saying, doesn't have that line-breaky rhythm that is happening in in the in the previous section. So then, like the voices come in between the sentences uh, rather than in a in a specific interval. I mean, in the beginning, you still hear the Jacques going right, like on the, on the drum, um, and and then it like it just like the prose. Uh, takes over the music of prose takes over and and then like the little voicings are happening Um, yeah maria your thought on this the chattiness of the letter lends itself to what you call deconstruction um a kind of porous indeterminacy right um which is very different from this very constrained self-conscious poeticness or uh yeah poetic nature of the previous couple of sections Zach, I want, I'm going to ask Frank a question, but I want us to hear a little passage. Uh, and it would be in section three. I think what we might hear is Jerry at his best responding to the music instead of just vice versa at that moment. So let's listen. This was in fulfillment of her dream. She cutteth the navel string and putteth a grain of salt beneath the infant's tongue. She rubbeth white honey upon her lips, also upon his arms. They drop a honeycomb into his cradle. Well, Esther, can you see the promise of her womb beyond this morning? Perhaps so. Perhaps no, says Esther Kane, and sings. Frank, am I am I way off? Is he is he figuring this out and and adapting the poem? Oh no, you're exactly on. There's so many different techniques here. So one of many is the idea that you kind of take two elements that have their own integrity, and you kind of let them go, and you don't micromanage every moment where they're going to line up, and you trust that. On one hand, people will listen, but more they'll go follow their own line, and that there's a strength from that. It takes a certain kind of confidence just to go ahead and do it, and we're going to go ahead and do this. And then often, and pretty much inevitably, moments of magic happen. That if you try, when you try to replicate them, you spend hours trying to get it timed out to repeat it. So, what literally happened at that point, and I'm going to say it was. An accident. I wish we could claim credit. So we had done this trick where for this section three, we set up this groove, this horror Jacques groove, but we didn't bring in the melody. So at that first part leading up to this, mm-hmm. Jerry is feeling the tempo, the rhythm. He's feeling that boom, boom, boom. And he's getting his poetry into it. A white-haired child which smelleth of old laundry, and you can hear the rhythm. And then what happened was, and this was maybe just, we probably said, oh, around the point of that 
question, will, will she see the products of her womb? Let's bring in the melody. And then what ended up happening is the melody got brought in a line before that. Or maybe we said, let's bring it on. They drop the honeycomb into his cradle. Sometimes we make these choices a little bit random. But what ended up happening, and I think Maria, Maria was talking about this before, is that he just... Being an experienced, we should we have to talk more about Jerome and his history of poetry and music because that's essential backstory. But in this moment, what happened was, so the melody came in a line before that, on top of this rhythm, he's already in the rhythm. We upped the ante. He had to, I don't even know if it was a conscious thought, he had to up his ante at that moment to ride, it's like riding a wave. It's like a surfer riding a wave. And they're not thinking, oh, now the wave is getting 20 meters bigger. I have to, you just feel it and you go. And that's exactly, and it worked out so well that it went on this line, which had that feeling, you know. So I wish this we is what Maria has been talking about and, and yeah. trying Upping to put the our. The ante is a great yeah. way to um, sort of paraphrase what I meant by this. Not not contest, but meeting yeah. each other, yeah. rising yeah. to the occasion. Yeah. I'm yeah. so glad we got to it because this is a good time to talk about, uh, you've been using the word seedy, uh, the, the thematic uh, setting, Esther Kay, the whole story. This is 1931. It's between the wars. Uh, the genocide of the Jews, of these particular Jews who didn't get a chance to leave, uh, is going to be an important topic for Jerome Rothenberg. So, Maria, let's go. So we're between the wars, and the Nazis who are not in this story, uh, but who are very much a factor uh, to the West of this. Uh, why would Jerome Rothenberg write a poem which kind of celebrates this seediness and this degeneracy? Well, we were talking before about degenerate art, and uh, well, I didn't know the phrase. And I, but I knew I was forgotten. I had forgotten it. Yeah, I knew there was a phrase that I was groping for. So all the things that Jerry likes: surrealism, but also this kind of grotty, sexy. Anyway, sorry, please. No, yeah, the kind of uh, the the uh, massaging the soap between her thigh. (laughs) I can't. You know, it's just a. You you know, you can see these paintings of. She like rubbed white honey upon her lips. Come yeah, on, yeah. It's, it's part. It's it's oh, a it's a match of the biblical and the uh, <laughs> and yeah. the extremely profane and, and yeah. abject, uh-huh. you know, yeah. bodily fluids, etc. Yeah. Which I mean, for me, I don't know that much about Yiddish culture, and I'm sitting with a group of experts. But one thing I do feel that is is captured in that language and in that vernacular culture is a kind of yoking of uh, the sacred and the profane. And that's where this takes place. Um, but I could riff on the sort of the marriage of heaven and hell, which was so important to the Jewish beats, and the yoking of the abject and the sacred, and also the sort of grafting of high culture and low culture, yeah. which I think is also a, um, a characteristic of what, was called by the Nazis degenerate art, you know, to put these really seedy scenes in a painting that was intended for gallery showing or something like that. Uh, Thank you. I've always admired the way Jerome Rothenberg has been an anti-fascist. He's been an anti-fascist by reviving the uh, European roots of Jewish modernism with all of that having been destroyed. Uh, and the defiance in this is to pick a subject matter in 1974 when the poets of the new American poets, of which he's so slightly younger, youngish memory wasn't in the anthology, but he published his first book in 1960. They're all doing much more overtly uh, avant-garde things in 1974. And he's doing this kind of throwback thing, a narrative poem about a woman in East Europe. It seems to me now we can see the defiance and the integrative quality of it. So I'm dying to hear uh, Frank and Jake respond to this whole thing. Frank, you've been nodding. Well, yeah. Um, I, I think you can't do the deep reading of this poem without the meta reading, Al, that you you walked, you walked you brought us into that door. That's why I was nodding my head. So he's writing this. In about 1971, we decided. 72, 72. 73. 
But it's Poland 1931, which may be the date of his birth, but is also interwar Poland. And every time we look at any art, either about or especially from that era, we, the people afterwards, can only see it through the lens of the Holocaust and the destruction. But we also know that they, the people in it, did not, especially in Poland in 1931, there's, they could not in any way have known what was about to happen, what was right around the corner. I think we have to always look at everything in this poem through the lens of how well he presents the joy and the, it's not just the joy, I mean, the conflict, all these things about the couple, the kid, and even in part four, the letter from China, knowing that just a mere 10 years later, China was one of the ways all of a sudden, it plays a new role in Jewish history because that's one of the ways that thousands of Jews survive by ending up in China. He, and he doesn't have to say anything. I'll he show doesn't. Yeah. The right. dramatic yeah. irony, as yeah. you just described it, is so – I really understand it now. Thank you, Frank. This, section four is this one funny person – not funny, but – off the mainstream of thinking way in which it's possible that Esther Kay could have escaped the fate of everyone else in her village because she had this relationship with this governor and then her friend said, I have this guy LL, you know, Louis Levine or whatever. Is this the end of the poem entirely? It is not the end of the poem entirely. Because the way I kind of read it is that... There's more even of that section. Oh, that she doesn't do it and... yeah. You know, this is the great opportunity that no one could have known was actually an opportunity. Right. Yeah. How yeah, big exactly. of an opportunity exactly. it was. Exactly. exactly. You know, I, the fusion that we've been talking about of low and high and, and the Song of Songs. And also East and West, I think, right? Mm. East and West, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, there's a lateral. Spatial, very lateral, especially because of that And also what we're letter. talking about is now a temporal fusion. We're mm. seeing the past and, well, the present through two pasts the past in which this was written and the past to which it refers. Right. But I guess what what, um, is so important to me here is how he ducks the cliches. He's talking about food Mm. constantly. But notice he's not talking about, like, I don't know, gefilte fish or something. He's talking about the honey. He's talking about tripe and poppy seeds. Um, and everything is is like that. Uh, it, it's not it's not what you would, would expect of kind of like the mainstream schmaltzy stuff. He has schmaltz, but uh, but it's a it's a much tastier, um, more seasoned, more authentic. He kind does of schmaltz. duck it, even when he does this sort of klezmer Hemingway. Uh, you know, it is evening. It is 1931 in Poland. It is better to be naked. It is more than that. It is worth it. Is it? Yeah. It is too soon. It is noon. So there, you've got a rhyme. You've got this. I mean, but he—he—you're—it's mesmerizing, right? And what the music is doing there at that point. Frank, the Klezmer revival. Can we get a little footnote on that just for listeners who are not... Okay, uh, I'll give you the footnote, but then I want to give the shout out. Okay, yes, do that. So the footnote, basically, to make it really short, Klezmer and Yiddish music flourished in the old country, flourished in the new world, both of America, Argentina, all the places Jews went to, very well documented between 1904 and 1930s, then basically this mixture of sort of the end of Jewish life in East Europe with the drive to assimilation everywhere else where Jews lived, especially in America, led to there being less and less of an audience for this music and for this culture and for this language. American Jews want to be Americans, and they want to be American Jews, but they don't want to be old world Yiddish Jews. The state of Israel with its new language, Hebrew, which was a a direct abnegation of Yiddish, uh, means that really... Italicized boldface. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Look away from that culture. Yeah, I I mean, you weren't allowed to have Yiddish on Israeli radio, blah, blah, blah. And American Jews followed suit. So Hebrew music, Israeli music takes over. So you still have it. But by the 60s, the culture is in its decline, nearly gone. And in the 70s, all of a sudden, as 
it's about to basically disappear. You have many of us posit Alex Haley's roots and the TV show that they made at the time with this drive to say, well, we are hyphenated Americans and everyone became a hyphenated American. We have this identity. We have this ethnicity. What is our ethnicity? What is our history? And the desire of Jews of my generation, third, second, third generation Jews, either to say, what was that language that mom and dad or grandma and grandpa spoke? What were those, what are these weird records hidden in a box in the corner? And that led to a rediscovery, which has been called, I don't like Klezmer Revival because it wasn't dead. It was a revival of the interest, a renaissance of the interest in it. If, if you look at it like it was about to be dead, but it got picked up. And that's, so that's the overview. And, and the shout out to Jerome, I've often talked about this and thank you for giving me the public chance to put forth My a pleasure. theory here, which is that I would say that Jerome Rothenberg started the Klezmer and Yiddish revival. Mm-hmm. So his bringing together the music, the poetry, kicked it off. I, if he's not the one who started it, he certainly is not recognized in the history of the of the revival. And I wanted to say that why the Klezmatics immediately had this bond with Jerome is that for many people, the revival had touches of nostalgia, kitsch. They weren't aesthetically driven. But what Jerome was doing much earlier was what, let's say, my band, the Klezmatics, and everything I've done tried to do. And Al, you touched on this because he doesn't go with the the literary or the aesthetic trend of the moment. He's willing to look at history, embrace history, be literal, but aestheticize it, politicize it, integrate it with modernity, and he's willing to put it all together. And it's what Chagall did, and which is why Chagall was rejected by Malievich and everything. That's one of the names. He's he doesn't do the CD. But he does the yoking of the high and the low. Exactly. And isn't Chagall made Fiddler on the Roof possible and all that kind of easy klezmer pre-revival? Yeah, but but in a sense, in yes. But that's why, in a way, Jerome's philosophy and attitude, I wouldn't say, I can't say that it formed the klezmatics because we already existed. But when we met him, we said, oh, yeah, you're doing, right. you've been doing the thing we've been trying to do. For, you've been doing it for 20 years. He had. And just a footnote to the footnote on this. In 1959 <laughs> or so, when Jerry moved to New York, he had been in San Francisco. No, I think he'd been, he'd been, around, he'd been in Europe. He'd been in Germany. He was in grad school in Michigan. Um, he came to New York, to Brooklyn, he and Diane Rothenberg. And uh, Robert Duncan came to visit. And Duncan, who was very into, you know, some mysterious things, had brought a copy of a very arcane book by Gershom Sholem. Now, Gershom Sholem, sorry for the obvious thing in this room, but Gershom Sholem was struggling as a scholar in the new Israeli Hebrews the Thing environment. And he was being, you know, his thinking about the importance of Yiddish culture and the mystical side of Judaism, which was, no, no, not mystical side of Judaism. So he's there, and Rothenberg reads it, and Rothenberg gets very interested in reviving the non-rational side mm-hmm. of both oh. modernism in its surrealist form and Jewish thinking. And so you said he'd been doing it for 20 years. It's exa- almost exactly right. What we should do is go around, everybody get a chance to say one more thing because we could go on forever because it's so much fun and there's so much to say. So I'll invite you to say one more thing that you came here to say and didn't have a chance to say. Maria, you first. Well, I would say that I started out after I heard or as I was listening for the first time at home, what came to mind was Zukovsky's Upper Limit Music, Lower Limit Speech as the definition of poetry or the bounds within which poetry could exist and how here we have the both together. That's what got me started thinking about the high and the low and the intensity being in the tension between them and their their simultaneity and that this is kind of a description of Yiddish vernacular and many vernaculars. And then I thought, um, what's beyond the upper limit and what's below the lower limit? And I thought of these vocables, which are 
uh, captured in so many vernacular cultures. And that I think that's what, when you hear Jerry's voice cracking, the ineffability that's um, captured in that crack. Um, so I would... I would say that. I would also say also because of my own interest in the beats. And it was David Meltzer, actually, who who in Beat Things talks specifically about the beats, yeah, and also as a response to the loss of European, uh, European Jewry, um, which is not, you usually just hear, oh, be after Hiroshima and Auschwitz, blah, 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 but you don't hear about it as a direct kind of, well, these were my grandparents. Yeah, I'm glad you got Meltzer, Meltzer um, into, into the conversation. And so um, so uh, just t- to tap it out, um, I think what's below and above these limits are um, howling, as in howl, and uh, the kind of angelic cries, angelic shrieks, which is what, and I hear Jerry's voice kind of unnaturally reaching in both directions, but mm. mostly upward. Mm. But, Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maria. Frank London, final thoughts? Well, there's a reason why we stopped the performance at that point, why we didn't go on to the Oh, res- there is. Okay. Yeah. Ah. And I didn't quite realize it, how fully it resonates until just now, sitting here with you all. And it's, I'm just going to say the last line that we ended on, a trip to this corner of the diaspora will truly change your life. <laughs> wow. What more is there to say? Wow. That's such a, that's such that's, a wow. That's Holy deep. shit. Jake, follow that. Well, yeah, thanks. Um, well, a trip to this corner uh, of the diaspora. The diaspora right. Diasporas don't have corners. That's the <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that's, that's what, the it's irony great. of the lady writing from right. China. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, there are the it's elbows. Right. Uh, it's all. Oh, wow. Well, uh, I guess uh, the corner of the diaspora that I stand in makes me think of, uh, you know, K, Esther K as in Kafka, which I think is a certainly a presence in this piece that we, we haven't talked about. But I think, um, you know, the disappearance of the governor, like some scary, strange stuff that's happening to the baby, like there's an undercurrent of the Kafkaesque that's happening here. Uh, while there's the ecstasy and seediness. And, uh, and the Esther-esque. Uh, yeah. Oh, I never thought of that. That's why I came <laughs> sorry, in think, sorry, thinking... Sorry, it's so obvious. <laughs> no, that's why I came in thinking about it as some kind of contest between some kind of gendered tension right. of there. The yeah. book of, of Esther, right. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. So you have Kafka. I'm sorry. Kafka yeah. and Esther, yeah. right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Hashverosh as the, as the governor. As the governor. Uh, yeah. I, there's just like so much uh, in, in this piece. So many uh, things are yoked uh, together um, memorably. Uh, memorably. And it is a novel in progress. I love that title too. It's like the, the progress uh, in the corner of the diaspora. Is, it's, it's still progressing. The poem hasn't ended. Well, I have two final thoughts. One is just a memory of, of being in a car with Jake driving an hour from the mid-peninsula, they call it, Silicon Valley, up to San Francisco. North Beach. Going to North Beach to do some filming about the beats. Anyway, um, and on the way, I turned on my iPhone video and recorded the two of us in a car, rented car, talking for 45 minutes about improvisation. <laughs> <laughs> which was entirely improvised. So much fun, Jake. Uh, but it, a little more seriously, um, when I first heard Klezmer in, you know, the records you're talking about, and so it's this is suburban New Jersey, Union County near Newark, uh, early 60s, th- these were records left from uh, his father-in-law, my mother's father, who was in the record business and we had a big box of them and I wanted to know what they were and he played for me. One of the things that he said to me, and my father was not learned at all, just, uh, gee, I went to North Carolina State on the GI Bill, not, and with all due respect to North Carolina State, he majored in ceramics, not ceramic engineering, but ceramics. So he didn't really know a lot school learning. He was, he wasn't an artist by profession, but he was my artist. Anyway, he, he, so we listened and he said to me, 
the thing that I know about this music is that sometimes the clarinet and the other instruments, but particularly listen to the clarinet, he says to his 10-year-old son, uh, they're reminiscent of the human voice. Mm -hmm. yes. The clarinet can laugh and weep if you listen yeah. carefully. Mm -hmm. And, well, of course, now that I, I think of my dad and teaching me that, I, uh, there's less laughing and more weeping, but the uh, listening to Jerry and the klezmatics, mm -hmm. all I could think of is that what Jerry's doing there is becoming a bit of that clarinet in the, and you've been talking about this, a reedy, a reed reedy instrument, adding his voice with all the semantic meaning, which is may or may not be important, this story, but then the laughing and the weeping that comes with it. So it's just another way of pointing out the ecstasy. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for all of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. So, Jake, are you ready to gather some paradise? Yeah, sure. Um, well, we brought up David Meltzer, who's a great person to talk about. Um, and, uh, I, you know, he passed away just very recently, and um, uh, I wanted to... Um, Can you plug some Meltzer for people who don't know Meltzer's work? Uh, sorry to make yeah, you improvise Yeah, 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 sure. Um, so, uh, there was a recent book that came out. It's sort of like his guide on writing, but it's not like, um, you know, here are my exercises. It's like him talking about writing in the way that just makes you want to write. Uh, it's... Um, Really, like I, one of the pieces that we actually uh, did with Frank today it was like I was reading it and I was like wanting to write immediately. It's, it's a it's a it's a brilliant book. Um, there are books of his that Jerry Rothenberg commented on as, as, as very important. There's a great Meltzer story um, about Robert Duncan and Kirshen Scholem. Uh, oh, like another nice, Scholem no, story. Yeah. Meltzer. So uh, for for an, an, another time, but um, David's copies like collection uh, of Meltzer poems that. That, that's always a good start. Yeah. Uh, Great. That's paradise. Mm -hmm. may, may he be in paradise. Mm -hmm. Maria, gather some paradise. Yeah, I'm going to hold this up to the mic so everyone can see it. <laughs> um, this is Adina Karasik's book, Salome. Adina, who's here with us. Donna di valore, woman of value or valor. Um, and uh, it is... Uh, absolutely gorgeous it's both beautiful physically beautiful and it's uh the language i don't read italian but the english is just uh rapturous and ecstatic uh word of the hour and just out and just out it Congratulations, is uh, it's the text of an opera that she's writing with frank or that she has written with frank and um by Funny coincidence, I have the information right here. It's going to debut in Vancouver March 8th and 9th of the next year. And at the Stone, at its last ever show on February 18th. So you can come and 2018. hear. Yeah, 2018. So you can come and hear this gorgeous text with gorgeous music. Wow, um, you connected everything all together. That's so fantastic. There you go. Frank gathers in Paradise. Any recommendations? Well, okay, I'm going to start by being totally as obvious as you can. I have been working um, really hard this last month on Merchant of Venice. And so I've been reading a lot of Shakespeare. And I didn't have a good education. I went to music school at New England Conservatory, or what we call not exactly college. So I never actually read Shakespeare ever, I think, one thing in high school. And so to sound like a total idiot, he's amazing. He's amazing. <laughs> and, 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 and the director, Karen Kunrod, is a real, she's a real scholar. I mean, luckily she doesn't direct like a scholar, but she, she, she has a scholar's mind. And she really gets the actors. She really, it's funny because she has them act less. She like, she's all about trust the language. Just, it's like, read what they say and pay attention to the, the the meter and the rhythm that he wrote in. And and there's a one little, what would be a toss-away line um, uh, about uh, that uh, Shylock's talking about uh, the, the ships, Antonio's ships that are at sea. And he goes, I hear there's all sorts of problems with water rats and land rats. And 
pirates. And I never thought of the rhyme, pirates. It's pirates, you know? But she's like, and, and, and all these kind of things like this. And then I started, you know, I saw, so I'm getting a Shakespeare bug. My shout out for Shakespeare. A shout out to Shakespeare. <laughs> I love that, Frank. That is not the one I expected. <laughs> Sorry, it's well, just the one no, of the week. No, please you know? do not apologize. <laughs> to hear, you know, one of the great musicians working today uh, remind us that you really need to read Shakespeare in the original. And it's hear it. Like and hear perfect. it. You, no, not just it's read perfect. it. You need to say it. Yeah. Or hear someone say it. It had to go to the New England conservatory <laughs> music and then X years yeah. later come up with that. Yeah. I love there you that. Go. My uh, Gathering Paradise is Bob Holman's relatively new book, Sing This One Back to Me, which we learned this afternoon is a reference to something that... Uh, Papa Suso, West African uh, musician, performer, uh, said to him oh, as a way of learning. And uh, so uh, that, that book, and here's just one stanza from that book. Because you stand alone in the middle of the room, trying to balance the world, life's pendulum shouts escape as the door opens to let you back in again. I love that. Well, that's all the white-haired children who smelleth of old laundry we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the uh, Kelly Writer's House <laughs> at the University of Pennsylvania. Very good. Um, and Poetry Foundation, Poetry Rothenberg Foundation. <laughs> Rothenberg, channeling, I don't know what it is. Poetry Foundation. Thank you to the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Maria Damon, Frank London, and Jake Marmer, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, we'll be discussing a talk poem by the late David Anton, which is about the 2003 Iraq War, it's called War, with Ariel Resnikoff, Diane Rothenberg, and the aforementioned Jerome Rothenberg. OMG! Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be fun. This is Al Filris, and I imagine that you will want to join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. Fuck yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> This is Al Filris, and uh, it's time for a little footnote to our uh, Poem Talk episode about Jerome Rothenberg's poll in 1931, and we were talking about the revival of Klezmer, and it happens that Jerome Rothenberg himself is here in the studio. So, Jerry, I just wanted to ask you to clarify the what you remember <laughs> of the origin of the revival of Klezmer that you were involved in. Uh, yeah, there was some uh, question of fi fixing the date for that in the discussion with, you know, Frank London, who is one of the great uh, Klezmer artists, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, r recognizes that, uh, you know, I was probably the inventor, so to speak, of the, Klezmer, that, yeah. uh, the Klezmer revival, uh, but couldn't put a, a, a year to it, uh, you know, and was off by a couple of years because it actually goes back uh, to uh, a performance at the University of California in San Diego when I was just a visitor there uh, in 1971 and organized uh, a, um, a group of musicians, uh, including Pauline Oliveros and... Uh, uh, Few others, uh, Jed Raskin, who uh, later became the um, the inventor of uh, the icon system for for Apple. Uh, but you know, this was that's long, another this was a long story. time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we organized a uh, a, a group. Uh, I, I wasn't using the term klezmer. I just thought of it as uh, Jewish wedding music. Uh, <laughs> but it had a name that group at some point. Uh, uh, and we called the group uh, the New Kabbalah Blues Band. And then for my son's bar mitzvah, which was privately staged in our backyard, uh, we organized another group. Uh, and my anthology, A Big Jewish Book, had come out. And so Ron Roy, who was the uh, you know, primary organizer for that, uh, you know, called the group uh, A Big Jewish Band. Uh, you know, yeah. And uh, they had a few years uh, uh, together playing uh, <clears throat> klezmer and related music. One uh, more question for you. Uh, how does it feel to hear, we sent you the raw uh, uh, recording of that conversation, unedited. 
How does it feel to have someone as at this point eminent as Frank London credit you with the revival? Well, I've, I've performed with uh, Frank London later, and uh, uh, no, that that's wonderful. It's uh, you know almost it is as wonderful uh, you know as when uh, uh, you know the great rock and roll performer Nick Cave uh, you know came out with his endorsement of Technicians of the Year. Now uh, you're dropping of, of the names. Sacred. Yeah, I'm dropping names because you know it sort Ooh. of brings work into you know into. Areas where I yeah. had not anticipated the yeah. work going, yeah. you know, and it feels very good, you know, to be there, you know, as well as in other places. Uh, I guess I did have one more question yeah. in my head. Uh, we talked in that Poem Talk episode a lot about the performance, what Frank remembers. What do you remember of fronting the Klezmatics that night? Uh, well, the uh, the performance with the uh, the Klezmatics... Uh, uh, it was the Esther K piece. Uh, it's the Esther K piece, and mm -hmm. uh, we, 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 of course, did more pieces than uh, than that. Uh, no, they, they were very good. Uh, it uh, uh, it was a little scary for me because we didn't do much uh, rehearsing for it, mm -hmm. you know. But they're, they're they're good, you know. They're your voice was very. You went up high. I went up high. Is that to uh, get uh, volume? Uh, uh, to get volume, to, you know, I was matching something. Uh, you know, I, I was I was trying to feel. I, I was chanting to discover. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great, Jerry Rothenberg. Thank you for uh, adding your uh, memories of this to our conversation. Thanks a lot.